Romans 8 and verse 19. Romans 8, verse 19 and verse 20. I'm going to read those and then I'm going to pray and we'll get right into it. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope. I'm sorry. Verse 19. For the anxious, anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again. We're able to dig into your word. We're able to discern your word, that you've given us eyes to see, ears to hear, Lord, that you've renewed our minds, you've given us new hearts, and we are able to understand your word. We, we thank you for this, God. Just pray that as we dig in now, Lord, that you would cause our hearts and minds to be lifted up to see you glorified. Just pray that the, the preacher is not in the way, Lord. Just want to see you through your word, through your teaching. In the name of Christ. Amen. So, by way of review, obviously, we're chapter 8 here. Um, it's, a, it's a chapter that's dealing a lot with the Spirit. Remember, the Spirit is mentioned 22 times in this chapter, far more than any other chapter in all the Scriptures. Uh, we've already seen that Paul is explaining his gospel. He's expounding on the gospel to the Roman Christians there. He says, for I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome also. So he's preaching the gospel to those Christians at Rome, which should teach us that the gospel is not just for unbelievers, it's for believers as well. That's not just the door that you walk into and then all of a sudden you're, you pass, I'm past the gospel, I don't, I don't need the gospel anymore, it's something that we need every single day. Over and over again, every single day. Almost every minute of every single day. But it's something that we should be preaching to ourselves as long as, as well as to those unbelieving around us. But we're here in this chapter here, and, and we're and remember how it started out with Paul in Romans 7 was kind of dealing with sin and saying, you know, the things that I don't want to do, those are the things I'm doing. But then he says, but now, to you, Christian, there is now no, not even one condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. And remember, that's kind of a bracket. He says there's not one condemnation in Verse 39, he says, Nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So you, Christian, you're secure. So we can see, clearly see eternal security here in this chapter. And we get here to this portion here in verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If you remember... Paul went through a lot of suffering. We saw that last week. All the sufferings that Paul went through. Uh, and remember, he was a Pharisee. The Lord saved him. And then the Jews beat him. <laughs> so he went through suffering. And he was writing to people who were going through suffering. 
and he tells them that their sufferings are not of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed, which we spoke of. The glory which is to be revealed being heaven. And then we get into our text here. I have three points, typically. Uh, first point is creation waits. The second point is God subjects. And the third point is hope expects. So the first point here is creation waits. So let's go ahead and start with the first phrase here. It says in verse 19, for the anxious longing. That first phrase here, that's the way the NASB translated. And at least in our culture, I think we possibly get a wrong idea about this. I think it's better translation is the, our earnest expectation or our eager expectation. Or I think the ESV says our eager longing. This is something that the creation waits eagerly for. It's not simply that, that it, it'll just happen someday, but creation is excited about it. And they expect it. The word here for anxious, anxious longing is used only one other place in the New Testament. So let's see where that is. Let, let, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1.18. Now remember, Philippians is what we call a, a prison epistle. It's one of the, the letters that Paul wrote when he was in prison. Verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that I should not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul writes this in prison. Paul had the same earnest expectation. It's funny that NASB actually translates earnest expectation here, but it doesn't translate it that way in Romans chapter 8. But it's the same, the same word. But Paul had the same earnest expectation that he would be delivered from prison and that Christ would be glorified in his body, whether by life or by death. So he had this earnest expectation. He's riding from prison, and I totally expect to be released. Y'all know what that feels like? I do. When you're put in jail or prison. And you have a sentence and they tell you you're there for so many days, right? Or so many years. And you, you go through this whole time. And then all of a sudden you get to that last little portion of it. Where you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And then what happens? You start getting this earnest expectation, right? I'm ready to be released. I'm almost about to be released. And sometimes, especially here, Paul probably didn't have that. He didn't probably tell him a certain date that he was going to get released. But at least here in America, when they sentence you, they tell you, you're going to jail on this day, on this day you'll be released. So all of a sudden you mark your calendar, right? And you start checking off days. Days, I got 46 more days to go. Oh, I have 18 more days to go. And then last week, what do you have? You have an earnest expectation. I'm about to get out of here. And what does it fill you with? Excitement. Joy. 
But that wasn't all, the only thing for Paul here. But it was that Christ would be exalted in his body, whether by life or by death. This is, that's the difference between the prison that he was in and the prison that we have today. The prisons that we have today, you get your own stove, you can cook steaks, you get to eat well, you get all the books and study and all the stuff you want to. Paul, he got thrown in a cell. They wanted to eat. Somebody better bring you some food. You're cold. Somebody better bring you a coat. So he had an expectation that he might die there. But he expected Christ to be glorified, whether he died there or whether he was released and lived. And it wasn't just a thing that might happen either. He didn't expect it like Christ might be glorified. Christ might be exalted through my life or my death. It was that Christ is going to be exalted in my life and my death. That's what his earnest expectation was. And he had it, and it says his earnest expectation and hope. It's the same language that's used in Romans 8. I believe it's the same thing. It's the same idea that creation has in Romans 8. Paul was in prison. Creation is subject to futility. That's what the text says. Both are bondage. He was in bondage and chains and prison, and creation is in bondage because of sin and the curse. Both have to wait on another as well. Paul couldn't just release himself from prison. Both have to wait on another. And in their waiting, they are earnestly expecting for what they know to happen. Paul knew Christ would be exalted in him and expected to be released from prison, which we know did happen. The creation knows the sons of God will be revealed, but in the meantime, creation waits with the same earnest expectation. Almost this idea that we have today, like, I can't wait till we get to do this. Y'all have that? You have a vacation planned or something? I can't wait till, or the next movie's coming out. I can't wait till it comes out. You have this earnest expectation. I need, I want it now. Why would I want, I don't want to wait another week. Parents know something of like this, don't you? It's like telling your children that you're going to a party in three days. Or one of your friends is coming over in three days. You don't tell them that, do you? You don't tell them that because you know that they're going to bug you over and over. What, what time is it? What time are they coming? When, when, when are they going to be here? They have an earnest expectation. We tell them a couple hours before, but then we tell them their room better be clean and they ain't coming over. <laughs> This is what creation is like with us, though. They are eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, the elect. Let me explain what this, the creation here is, though. The creation waits. And I think it will help us before we move on to our next point, though. But let me preface this by saying that there's actually, if you probably read two good Commentaries, two good reformers, they probably don't say the same thing. Actually, a couple that I looked at, John Gill and John Calvin, they don't agree with each other. They're not combative against one another. Just one gives this idea, one gives this idea. They're not the same idea. John Calvin says it's the creation, as you would think of creation, right? This world. And I'm pretty sure that's the majority of you. I haven't heard much many people say it's not that. But John Gill says it's the Gentiles. And he actually gives very good argumentation to that. I say, why can't it be both? 
But let's see. The creation, and I'm going to go back here to Romans 8. And I'm going to read this text. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation waits eagerly. The creation here cannot mean everything created, though. You're like, why not? If it's creation, does it mean everything that was created? No. Look down at verses uh, 20 through 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together even until now. So the creation here in verse 19 is the creation that was subjected to futility. That is, in slavery to corruption. But you're like, isn't that all creation? Wasn't all creation subject to futility? No, it wasn't. All creation didn't fall. The angels, as we were speaking about before service, the angels, they are created beings. They were created during creation week, yet they didn't fall. They're not subject to this futility. So I don't believe this is talking about them, even though I looked at a little bit, one of the commentaries said this was talking about angels. Which, according to the context, it cannot mean the angels. It means the creation that we see on a daily basis. And that's what I believe it to mean. The earth and all that's in it. The birds chirping. The animals that roam it. The stars that give forth their light. The earth itself. To quote Calvin here, he says... But he, talking about Paul, but he ascribes hope to creatures void of reason for this end. That the faithful may open their eyes to behold the invisible life, though as yet it lies hid under a mean garb. This is what we were talking about before service. Angels serving. We don't see them. They don't show up to us. When they did show up, John tried to bow down and worship, worship them. Right? He fell out of space as dead and wanted to worship the angel. One of the angels said, get up, John, don't worship me, worship God. But they're there, they're here. But not just that. Brethren, there's more to this redemption than just you and your justification. It's not like, oh, at, at the end, all that matters is if I get justified. Paul would have a different viewpoint. All of creation is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation, not just you. Not just me. Now I've argued this before and I'll still argue it. When Christ came, he reversed the curse. Adam brought about the curse, Christ reversed the curse. Adam brought about this curse and futility, but Christ reversed it and is renewing the earth itself through redemption. So brethren, look out. The creation celebrates your redemption. Now that doesn't make sense. Well, neither do rocks crying out to our minds, do they? Let's see this argument from Gil. 
It's best of all, it is best of all by the creation to understand the Gentile world. The creation here and the whole creation in verse 22 must be the same, which I think we agree on. The whole creation or every creature as it may be rendered signifies the nations of the worlds in distinction to the Jews. See Mark 16, 15, compare it with Matthew 28, 19. Now we know those verses. To add to this, uh, Dr. John Lightfoot says, the first is the phrase, and it has the Greek there, I don't which we render the whole creation. The phrase that we render the whole creation in verse 22, and with which we meet twice elsewhere in the New Testament. In Mark 16, 15, preach the gospel to every creature. And Colossians 1, 23. We know those verses, right? In Mark 16, 15, it's the Great Commission. It says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In Colossians chapter 1 and 23, Paul says, I have been out to the whole world and preached the gospel to every creature. And we know that they're talking about not just the Jews now. The Jews had their oracles of God. They forsook them. They went about and established their own, tried to establish their own righteousness. God brought in the Gentiles, grafted them in, and we are to go out and preach the gospel to them now too. The whole of creation, not just Jews, but also the Gentiles. However, I'd like to combine these. Not only the Gentiles, but the creation groans as well. Just as the earth swallowed up the sons of Korah in judgment, it groans for the revealing of the sons of God. The earth did that. Those who are the sons by adoption. Remember, that's our context. Those that are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We will be revealed to all creation. And it says in Daniel, we will shine forth like the stars. Now obviously I don't say this for us to boast. But us to rest in the fact that God does this. God does all of this. It is in Him that we have adoption and are made sons. It is His creation that groans and eagerly awaits our revealing. And the revealing is in His time. He's in control of all this, not us, not His creation. He controlled the earth to swallow up the sons of Korah. And it is He who says that the rocks would cry out if men didn't worship. Which is what a good lead into the next point. God subjects. The first one is creation waits. All of creation waits and groans, it waits eagerly, expectant of the revealing of the sons of God. And then our next point here is God subjects. Look at verse 20 in Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope. It is God who subjected it in futility. You're like, wait, what? Wasn't it Adam? Let me ask you something. Is Adam sovereign? Is Adam the ruler of the universe? Could Adam in and of himself brought about a curse? No. The curse actually comes from God. Let's see this. Turn back to Genesis 3. This is kind of elementary, but we know this. 
Genesis 3. I'm going to start actually in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the, both of, then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with, be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both the thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. <coughs> and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The curse was brought about by God. You see that? Adam couldn't curse the earth. God said, I'm going, you're cursed now because he was the one that brought it. Adam couldn't curse the earth, but it's from his actions that God cursed the earth. It's because of his sin. He sinned and the result was God cursing the creation. His creation. And he is sovereignly reigning over it now. It is he who is omnipotent, all power that cursed it. It is him who we should look for the, for the redemption of it as well. He in Christ redeemed and is making all things new. Not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And not just the Gentiles, but all of creation. As more men and women are regenerated and obey God when it says to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves and we go out and preach the gospel to every nation we see more and more of the earth redeemed now this work won't be 
until the consummation when Christ returns and does away with those who blaspheme his name. But he's working now throughout the earth in reversing the curse. The one who's subjected to creation to the curse is the one who reversed the curse and is making all things new. Would there be any other way? Would there be any other way than the one that, that actually that, that subjected the creation to the curse, came into creation, and redeemed us from the curse? Would there be any other way? Is God not the centerpiece of history? Is it not all about Him? Or is it about us? Is not everything from Him and to Him and through Him? To Him be the glory forever and ever. Will He not make all His enemies His footstool? And that last enemy, death, which comes from the curse, will be cast into the lake of fire, along with those whose names are not written in the book of life. This is where we're headed. This is where our, create, our, our history is headed. It's headed that way. And this is what creation is eagerly waiting for, eagerly expecting of. Is that though God subjected the creation to the curse, that one day it will be gone. They're waiting for the consummation of all things. And this is our expectation too as well, right, brethren? I hope. And we're looking forward to that day when there is no more curse and there is no more sin and there is no more death. Though we look forward, but we work here right now within that. Hence why Paul says in hope. I didn't find any to agree with this, but I think in hope should be with the next verse. But we're going to be dealing with it today with this verse. God subjected the creation to futility because of Adam's sin. The word for futility is a word that can mean vanity or moral depravity. Do we not see this? Do we as Christians know that this is not the end, though, don't we? We see death. We see decay. We see moral depravity. And can we not say like those of old, the Lord kills and the Lord gives life. We see this now. But we know that it won't always be like this. We know that though creation is eagerly awaiting the day of the revealing of the sons of God, we as the sons of God, or the children of God, is what we could say, as the children of God, wait for that day too. And we know that that day is coming. And we know it's not always going to be like this. We know the creation is not always going to have to groan and eagerly wait for the revealing because one day it will be revealed and it will be all made new. How do we know this? Because Christ is risen. He defeated death. He conquered death. That thing that, that Adam brought about when he said, when you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. Christ came and he did not eat of that tree and he did die. And through his death, he defeated death. He gives life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Eternal life is only found in Him because only in Him is life. He is the life giver. This is why I had a discussion yesterday uh, with some men and 
This is why all the other false, all the other religions in the world are false. Because if Jesus is what he says he was, if he did what he says he did, all the other religions have to be false. Because he is the life giver. Not Buddha. Not Muhammad. I was actually asked, how do you know that, that Buddha was wrong? I said, didn't Buddha die? Where is he at? We can go dig up his bones right now. Christ defeated death. And through that has reversed the curse and has given us life and we know where we're headed, right? Eternal life is found in him and only in him. Only in him is life. And we know that our final resting place is in him and with him. Because we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? This death, decay, and moral depravity is coming to an end. So in closing this point, the one in whom subjected the creation to futility is the one who redeems it. All glory goes to him. And brethren, that's why we have hope. So let's look at our third point here. Hope expects God's subjects... I hope you picked up what I was laying down there. Adam's sin brought about the curse, but it was God that subjected the creation to the curse. But it says, in hope, in verse 20, let's read these two verses again. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So we know that the creation is eagerly waiting the revealing of the sons of God because it was subjected to futility because of man, but by God. However, we are to have hope. Now let me say that this doesn't mean how we think, I sure hope this thing will happen. I sure hope this works out for us. I really hope this works out for us. This isn't like Pascal's wager, if you ever heard of that. You know, he says the, anybody should, should live as though God exists and seek to believe in him. Because if God does not exist, such a person will only have a finite loss, right? Maybe some pleasures in this world. Whereas if God does exist, he stands to receive infinite gain and avoid infinite loss in hell. This isn't that, though. That, I would never use that. That's an apologetic to try to use. I would never use that apologetic. Why? Because even rational people can't just choose to believe anyways. The wise person just can't decide, I'm just going to believe in God. God must awaken that person, and then they will have this hope in them. Now this is that blessed hope of the consummation. Of the coming of Christ at the end of history. This is something that all Christians believe. You look at any of the confessions, any of the creeds, and they all speak about the coming back of Christ. We all believe this. Now we may disagree on how it might happen or when it might happen. But we all agree that it will happen. Let's see this blessed hope in Scripture. Turn to Titus. Not my son. 
Titus chapter 2. Titus 2.13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's our blessed hope. The appearing, the coming, the, 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 the consummation at the end. That's our blessed hope. That's what, we wait, that's what we're waiting on. Now, I want us to notice something in this text, though. Now, this has nothing to do with anything here, but... I do want to bring this out. Notice it says, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Not, I think KJV says our great God and our Savior. And it almost makes it seem like there's, there, it's talking about the two persons of the Trinity right there. Where it looks like to me that it's talking about the one person, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. But this blessed hope is what we're waiting on. We are, we're waiting eagerly expectant for it, just as creation is. This is something that we know is going to happen and we expect it. I think it's the same idea in Romans, what Paul is saying to uh, Titus right here. The creation is groaning until this blessed hope when the sons of God will be completely revealed. And this is our hope as Christians as well. This is our hope. We long for this day. I think we have a lot of work to do, but, but we still long for the consummation of all things. When we'll be home in glory forever with the risen Savior. Listen to this quote by Ian Murray. It says, however bright, comparatively, the world may become when the church reaches her full, fullest development in history, the advent of Christ will ever remain the pool star of faith and hope. For earth, listen to this, this is awesome. For earth, however blessed, will never begin to equal heaven. As Bingo points out, even in that future time when there shall be an overflowing fullness of the Spirit, Christians will still be in conflict with indwelling sin. They will still face temptation and meet with death. So no matter how great this earth becomes, and believe me, I, I'm, you know, y'all know I'm a post mill, I believe that the gospel is going to be forth and is going to go forth and the church is going to cover the earth. But it still pales in comparison to heaven. Why? Because we'll still struggle with sin and we'll still die and there will still be a curse here. Christ is redeeming the world now. But there still will be a time when we'll have paradise restored. And no matter how great we have it here now, it will pale in comparison to that day. Don't you long for that day? This is what we. This is how you can rest tonight, right? I hope. You know, everything's going to be redeemed. That day we will have no more death. That day we will have no more sin. That day that we can praise Him uninterrupted. God is bringing this about, Christians, too. It's Him that's doing it. We don't do it. He is our hope. Matter of fact, if you look back at chapter 1 here in Titus, in verse, just look at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God 
and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but, but at the, the proper time manifested even his word and the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Once again, the deity of Christ right there, right? God our Savior. But that's not my point. Hope of eternal life in verse 2. It says, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. It's the same thing, brother. That's our hope. Eternal life. That consummation at that day when there will be no more death and no more sin. The consummation will wrap up this world system unto life everlasting. And without, without expounding on these texts, I'm going to go back here to Romans 8. Verse 21. This is why I think in hope should go with this verse. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from the slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's no more corruption. That's where we're headed. No more futility. That's where we're headed. No more slavery. No more bondage. No more curse. When we are free from sin, death, moral depravity, and corruption. And so is creation headed that way. We are free because Christ set us free. Now. Through his perfect life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And what hope we have, brethren, now because of what he has done for us. And like I said, it's not hope like we hope someday that this will happen. It's the definition of the word hope is a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. A joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. It's not, oh man, I hope this will happen. It's, I know it's going to happen, and I'm joyous, and I'm expecting it. It just hasn't came yet. So be expectant and joyous. That's, that's really what this is telling us, right? Though you have current sufferings, this is what he just talked talk right before these verses. You have these current sufferings, but it, it doesn't pale in comparison to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation itself is eagerly awaiting our the revealing of the sons of God. And so should you, in hope, in joyful, and confident expectation. He's coming back, right? Amen? But in the meantime, work, for the night is coming, when man works no more. Amen? Let's go to our application here. A call to faith and repentance. First to the person in here that does not know Christ. The unbeliever. When speaking about the creation waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, we must take into account that creation also waits for sinners to be cast away. It's not that, that we just want the revealing of the sons of God, but we want these sinners off of us. Right? That's what, 
I, I quoted it earlier. I said something about it. But in Numbers 16, 32, it says, And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. Talking about the sons of Korah here. And their household and all the men that belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol. And the earth closed over them. And they perished from the midst of the assembly. That's the church. The assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their outcry. For they said, the earth might swallow us up. This should be your outcry, unbeliever. The earth might swallow you up today. If creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, it most certainly waits for the destruction of sinners. Thanks to Brother Ben reminding me that uh, on the day that the sinners in the hands of an angry God, I went back and listened to it, and I, and I got this quote from this. Listen to this. Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment, for you are a burden to it. The creation groans with you. The cre creature is made subject to the bondage of your corruption, not willingly. The sun does not willingly shine upon you to give you light to serve sin and Satan. The earth does not willingly yield her increase to satisfy your lusts, nor is it willingly a stage for your wickedness to be acted upon. The air does not willingly serve you for breath to maintain the flame of life in your vitals when you spend your life in the service of God's enemies. He also said, and the world would spew you out were it not for the sovereign hand of him who has subjected it. The earth doesn't serve you. I know we, we, we tend to think that. We tend to often think that even as Christians. That everything's about us, right? The earth doesn't serve you, but the earth serves God. If you outside of Christ don't repent and believe upon Christ, this life will end and you'll perish forever. Scripture tells us also in Jeremiah that God is pleased with judgment. We're all, you know, in our culture today, everything's that, you know, God's over here crying in the corner because you rejected him, and he doesn't want to send you to hell, and now that you're in hell, you're, you're, his heart's broken for all of eternity. That's not the God of the Bible. That's a different God. That's a different religion. The God of the Bible says he is pleased in judgment, so he will be pleased when he pours out his justice upon you. And those angels that surround his throne day and night crying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, will continue to cry. So if you sit here today hearing a sermon from the Word of God rejected, you're increasing your judgment. I pray that you come to him today. He paid for sin in his death. He rose from the grave defeating death. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where He is now sitting down making intercession for His people. Come to Him and live. And to the believer here. Just seeing a hearing a message and, and thinking of the verses that you know that deal with corruption and death you know, we, should, we should be telling ourselves to lift up our heads. Say like the psalmist says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? 
Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. All creation groans in anticipation of the revealing of the sons of God, and we sit in despair. We sit in depression. No, why are you in despair, O oh my soul? That's what we should be preaching to ourselves. Why are you in distress? Why are you depressed, O oh my soul? Have hope in God. He subjected it, and He will redeem it. You can be depressed before you know Him, but after you should not be. And I say this from personal experience. If your eyes are fixed on Jesus as they should be, you can't be depressed or in despair. It's impossible. How can you, our eyes stay fixed on Jesus? By listening to preaching? By studying? By simply reading His Word? By being in prayer? By singing songs to Him and about Him? By preaching Christ? By helping the helpless in the name of Christ? You tell me you're doing all these things and you're still depressed or in despair. Problem is, we need to repent of focusing on ourselves. That's where despair and depression come from. They certainly don't come from focusing on Jesus. Fix your gaze. You shouldn't be the focal point, but Jesus should. Repent of that. And believe the Word of God. Believe Christ. He is called the God of all comforts. He will comfort you in despair. And when I say comfort, when the Word of God says comfort, it's the true meaning of the Word. It doesn't mean to just be lazy and do nothing. Like, it's comfortable. It means with strength. Come means with. Fort means strength. It's with strength. He gives us strength to serve and worship Him and to serve others. Go to Him and ask for this and serve Him with all your might. Repent of seeking your lazy comfort, of your despair and depression and lay down your life for Him. For the creation itself eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God. Now our call to war here. It says in 1 John chapter 3, Verse 2 and 3 says, Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him just as He is. And then it says, And everyone, everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So have you been adopted into the family of God? If you have, you have this hope in you. So what's the response? You have this hope that you will see him as he is one day. So what's the response? Listen to, I'm, I got another quote here. I got a lot of quotes today, but this is from Calvin also. The meaning then is that though we have not Christ now present before our eyes, yet if we hope in him, it cannot be, but that this hope will excite and stimulate us to follow purity, for it leads us straight to Christ, whom we know to be a perfect pattern of purity. Brethren, are you doing this? It says, if you, if you, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we shall see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
Every man to have his hope purifies himself even as he is pure. Do you have that hope? Yes, as a Christian, you definitely have that hope. Are you purifying yourself even as he is pure? Look at your life. What do you follow? If it's Christ, he'll be in everything, right? Your job will be for him. Your family life will be for him. Your friends will be edified or convicted by your living for him. He will be in everything. Christ is in the little box that we put, put him in. And we just Sunday morning open that box and get him out. And then once we, once we leave service, put him back into this box. That's not the Christian life. That's not the Jesus Christ whom I know, who the scriptures declare. He's in everything. So you following him. You have your gaze fixed upon him. Or is it for this world? The temporary. The stuff that we see, right? That's what we, we tend to follow. The next big thing. Or the best thing. The next best thing. Or the next big thing that, that we need. Or is it our work? Or is it our leisure? Are you following those? I mentioned to Zach the other day. As men... We tend to be on one end of the spectrum or the other when it comes to that. We are either workaholics or we're lazy. <laughs> we tend to be on, on one side of the spectrum or the other. We either give every single second of every single day thinking about work and doing work, or we just want to do enough work just so we can relax. Or we don't do any work at all. And what did the apostle tell us about those people? If man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Both of those are sins, though. To be lazy is a sin. To be a workaholic for some temporal job that probably in another year, they're going to fire you or you're going to hate it so much you're going to find another job anyways. Both of them are sins. Now, me and him didn't talk about this, but this is true as well. Women. Mothers. Tend to work more than men. Even the men that go out, the wife stays at home. The men go out and work 40, 50, 60 hours a week. The women tend to work more. They never get rest. Have you think about that as men? Our wives probably never get rest. Why? Because they have the kids all day long. And even when they don't have the kids and Somebody else has the kids, like your parents or somebody that's watching them, they're still thinking about the kids. I wonder if they're safe. I wonder if they're doing this. I wonder if they ate. I wonder. Nonstop. Their lives are wrapped up in their children. But that's sin as well. But this tends to often be because of lack of the father's duty. The father's out working all the time, or the father's being lazy. And the mother has to take up all that. So you both then sin for that stuff. I mean, we all not be this way, brethren. We as families need to work together. We need each other. I've said this the other week. You know, God gave us our spouse. I didn't just go out and find it. Her. God brought her in my life. 
And God's one that kept us together. And we need each other. I say all that to say this. We need each other to help us look upon Christ. And purify ourselves even as He is pure. Are we doing that together as a family? But just, just because y'all singles aren't safe either. To those that don't have a spouse or the children, it's time for war. It's time to lay down your lives more for the advancement of the kingdom now that you're single. Do you have this blessed hope of eternal life? And so, what does this life mean? What did Paul say? Now, Paul, I would argue, is the greatest missionary of the Christian church. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, Yet, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. That sounds boastful, doesn't it? I said that. Man, I wish all men were like me. That's not what he means. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, that it is good for them if they remain even as I. That's what he was saying. You single men and women, remain if you can. Now there's a greater context to this that it says if you can't control yourself, get married. But if you... If you are single, remain single if you can. Why? Because you can give 100% of everything to, to the advancement of the kingdom. I don't have to say, honey, do you mind if I give this person this amount of money? Or you don't have another mouth to feed. He says, it's a gift. Singleness is a gift. I probably didn't think that when I was single. I felt like it was a curse. But the text says singleness is a gift. If you can remain single, it's a gift. And the church needs y'all just as much as the married and the families. Y'all are free to do as you wish without consulting a partner. You can be on a street preaching. You can actually probably do it. Friday, get off work, go stand out here and preach for two days straight. You don't ever have to go home. You, don't have to, you never have to take a shower or anything because you don't be around anybody. You just stand on the corner preaching to people. You wouldn't ever get a phone call, honey, pick up some milk on the way home. You never have to know, you know, at 7 o'clock we do our, our nightly devotions. I need to get back so I can do that because you don't have any of that. You can sit in the Word of God for hours on end without feeding a child or even thinking about it because you don't have it. Right? Y'all know how hard it is sometimes to get, just give me a half an hour. I'm just going to go read. Especially when you have little ones. Little, little ones. Five minutes. If you get five minutes. But as a single, you don't have that. Is now not the time that you should be totally devoted to the Word of God and the advancement of His kingdom. He'll bring somebody. Don't focus on that prospective spouse. Focus on Christ. And when or if it's time, He'll bring them to you.
So let's as a church family, made up of husbands, wives, children, singles, come together to fight this fight for his glory, helping one another along the way because we have this blessed hope to look forward to.